Hi, you're listening to another message from Sunny Hill Church. Our prayer is that these messages encourage, empower, edify, and equip you to live for Christ in 2023. Be blessed as you listen in. Today is the day. The scriptures to say this is the day that the Lord has made. This is the day that the Lord has made. The scriptures say his mercies are new every morning. There is something specific and significant about this day that God wants to do something in our life. Um, In the Lord's Prayer, we know that when the disciples say, teach us to pray, Jesus says, part of this prayer is give us this day our daily what? Bread. There's a daily provision, a daily supply that God wants you to experience today. Like there's something special about today. And I was thinking about this, like towards the end of my holiday, like how we relate to time. You know, the last message I did here before we went on holiday was about rest. And I was talking about how we rest in God. And it doesn't just mean watching Netflix and eating pizza. It actually means intentionally putting ourselves in the presence of God and learning to rest with God and in God. And from that rest, we're able to do fruitful labor. Well, I'm kind of thinking a little bit about time today and how we relate to time. Because as I was reflecting and and thinking about this on my own time, I was thinking we can maybe be put in one of two categories. So try and track with me. Like some of us dwell on the past. Some of us kind of live in the past, think on the past, get stuck in the past. Uh, Maybe it was a point of trauma, an incident, an abusive moment that you struggle to be free from. Or maybe it was a highlight. Maybe it was something great. Either way, some of us have the propensity to look backwards And then there are others of us that are dreamers. We dream about the future. You know, me specifically, I think I'm a dreamer. I'm often thinking and talking about the future. What kind of person am I going to be tomorrow? How is my family going to look tomorrow? Like, what will this church be like tomorrow? I think one of the giftings God has given me is a visionary. So I can see things before they're a reality. And I, and I take it as a, a, a real blessing. Like I, I thank the Lord for that gift. But a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago, Louise said to me, like only a wife can, she says, I notice in your preaching, you're always talking about the next season. She says, it would be good to hear about this season. That's why God gives us wives. She was like, like, we're always thinking about what's coming next. And I was thinking on that. And as she said it, it's one of those frustrating moments because you know it's true, but it's your wife. So you want to fight that? <laughs> and go, no, that's not right. Like, it's all about, like, you know, ultimately, today is yesterday's next season. <laughs> you know, today is yesterday's tomorrow. So it's all valid. But uh, it was one of those things that just got logged in my soul. And it was just like this idea that, like, if vision doesn't mobilize me now, then the vision's ineffective. If what I'm learning about God doesn't move me today, then it's fruitless tomorrow. Like, if what we say about God, what we read in the Scriptures, doesn't affect my outlook today, then it's kind of redundant in use because tomorrow may never come. And that's a very sobering, kind of brutal thing to say. But listen to how James puts it in chapter 4, verse 13 to 15. He says, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow, uh, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Like if you're oriented about tomorrow, that's what we say. Verse 14, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? 
It says you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I mean, this is not kind of one of those um, Joel Osteen-esque messages that you get. Like, this speaks about the, the fragility and the temporal nature of life. He says, instead, you ought to say this, if it's the Lord will we, will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who, does, who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So it's a very brutal challenge, but James is essentially saying, if you know stuff, if you hear stuff, but you do not implement it now, then you are sinful. You're essentially disobedient. If you're constantly talking, well, tomorrow this will happen. Tomorrow then I'll do this. Tomorrow I will sort out my marriage. Tomorrow I will change the approach that I'm raising my kids with. Tomorrow I will work harder. Tomorrow I will start putting aside an inheritance for my children. Tomorrow, 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 then actually we sin because we are not guaranteed tomorrow. In fact, the principle of this passage is this. I can't change yesterday. I have no guarantee of tomorrow. Today is the only day I have. If we receive that truth, how would it drastically shift how you behave right now in this moment? Just so you know where I'm journeying this morning, I'm starting from a very personal challenge, and I'm going to look at us for a church as well, the implications of what I'm talking about for us corporately, but I want to start with this individual forensic look. I can't change yesterday, I have no guarantee of tomorrow. Today is the only day I have. Psalm 90 verse 12, we read this. It says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. What is the psalmist saying? If you live understanding that there is a limitation to your life on earth, that's really where wisdom is found. I think part of the challenge of modern society is that we think that we are untouchable. And it's only when we come into the proximity of death are we confronted with the sober reality that we're not guaranteed of tomorrow. You know, even if you know someone is on their way out, maybe they've got cancer or something else, else horrific, you kind of prepare for death, you know there's an imminency about it, but still when they breathe their last, it's still, oh, it's still a shock to the system. Because what we're confronted with is the temporary nature of life. And, and all of the stuff that we have accumulated, all of the money that we have set our heart towards, seems totally futile in this moment. Because I'm not guaranteed of tomorrow. It's the Lord's will. Is it the Lord's will that I live tomorrow? That's on Him. But what matters today, and how I live today, that's on me. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? Teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days. In other words, the principle being this. Time is the greatest commodity we have. I, I, really, I really try to drill this into my boys. I've got three sons, 12, 9, and 7. And it seems brutal to be as a dad to remind them that death is always around the next corner. And as Christians, in all honesty, we, we need not fear death because the best is yet to come in God, okay? So it's not a morbid understanding to say death could happen tomorrow. But it's just that brutal, sobering reality that if that is the case, how we live today truly matters. 
one of the things I say to my boys, because like all humans, we're constantly um, subject to media that pushes the value of accumulating stuff and success and more money and more money and more money. But the thing is, you can always make more money, but you can't make more time. Think about it this way. I give you £86,400. Would you like that? Yeah. Put your hand up if you'd like that today. Backsliding heathens. You're all about the money, aren't you? Right. <laughs> Caleb, can you come here just for a minute? I haven't primed him for this. This is what I'm going to say to you. Okay, this is pretend, by the way. I need to clarify that. Otherwise, he'll be on my case about it. I'm going to give you £86,400 today. Like I say, this is just an illustration, okay? Don't get excited. Okay, but here's the rule. Anything you don't spend by midnight, I'm going to set fire to. How would you spend that money today? I'd probably, I'd probably invest it. <laughs> <laughs> ah, should have picked another kid, man. Um, I can't wait till you lot go out next Sunday. All right, anyways. Um, no, you've got to spend it on stuff. I guess what I want to ask is, would you spend it all? Or would you not spend all of it and allow it to be burned? Uh, I'd buy um, uh, PS5s, like all of my money to PS5s, and then I'd um, sell them all. <laughs> For even more. For even more. Okay, sit down, all right? Shut up. <laughs> Never work with animals or kids, innit? That's the, that's the, the saying. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a basically basic question, which obviously Caleb had to mess with, didn't he? Okay. But the idea is that it would be remiss or stupid to allow money to sit in our account if we're going to lose it at the end of the day. Yet, if I was to say that every day that you live consists of 86,000... 400 seconds. And so, whatever you do not use wisely today, you will not get tomorrow or the next day. All of a sudden, we see the limitation and the restriction of time that is constantly being used up. And it doesn't matter how risky you are, whether you are Musk or Bezos, like you can build spaceships and go to Mars, but you can't make more time. Time is a commodity, and so the psalmist says, teach us to number our days that we may gain the heart of wisdom. To understand there is a limitation to life that actually should affect how we live today. Uh, you know, in the uh, scriptures, when God himself is speaking to Moses, he calls himself, I am who I am. That God is the great I am. He is not the great I was. He is not the great I will be. He is the great I am. And it's encouraging to think that we serve a fully present God. A God who is intrinsically involved in every passing and present moment. And he is the same yesterday, today and forever. So today God is the great I am. And in the unknown of tomorrow God is the great I am. And in yesterday's pain and trauma, God is the great I am. He is our ever-present help in times of need. He is a fully present God. And I believe that he is calling us as people to be fully present people. Now, obviously, I am not the great I am. But I wonder what it looks like for me to be a good I am in the life of my children. I wonder what it looks like for me to be a good I am in my marriage, 
I wonder what it looks like for me to be a good I am with my colleagues in my relationships. Not like me on the boat that was there in body but totally absent in spirit. But actually for us to be fully engaged in every moment, knowing that there is a limitation to time. And that ultimately we want to glorify God with every breath we have. That's the personal challenge. And I'll tell you how I came here. I was reading through John's Gospel on holiday. And there's this significant moment. You can turn your Bibles there now. John 4. It's the last Gospel. I'll tell you what the page number is in a minute. It's page 888, okay? Not that that's relevant to you at all, unless you've got exactly the same Bible as me. But the context is Jesus has just been spending time with the woman at the well. You can take that off the screen for a minute, Jonathan. Thank you. Jesus has been spending time with the woman at the well. A woman who had gone in the heat of the day, you know the story, to draw up water and Jesus is fully present in the moment. His disciples have gone off to buy food, yet Jesus is here and he's having this exchange with this woman. And he's essentially, the conversation says like, can you draw me some water? And she says, what are you going to draw with? You've got no bucket and this well is deep. And Jesus was essentially teaching this woman that there was more to life than the physical nature of water, but, in, but rather there is a bubbling brook that God wants to put on the inside of us that flows to everlasting life. That there is something more meaningful than this physical matter of water. You know, in this moment, water is the most, the biggest commodity. They need it. They're in this hot place in the desert. And uh, Jesus has this exchange with her. And what's interesting is on the back of that, the disciples come back and join him. And um, they're kind of surprised that he's been having this exchange, this altercation with this lady. And the disciples say, uh, they come back thinking, he must, we've had a long journey, he must be hungry. And in verse 32, uh, verse 31, sorry, they urged him, Rabbi, eat something. And in verse 32, he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Like, there, there is something bigger that my life is given to than, than just this carnal um, exercise of eating physical food. And then in verse 33, we read, his disciples said to each other, could someone have bought him food? Like, in other words, maybe he's already eating. And Jesus says in verse 34, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And then we read this. And this is the thing that just grabbed me for a church. It says, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Now, in the time that Jesus is speaking this, we know really the context is agricultural. That they understand the nature of the seasons. That there is a, a, a season to sow, and there's a season to reap. There's a season to sow seed, and then you wait a little while, wait a couple of seasons, and then at the optimum time, the seeds have produced a crop and a harvest, and then our business is to move from this position of sower to reaper. And, and Jesus is lifting this agricultural principle and practice, and what he's actually doing, he's applying it to spiritual matters. Because Jesus wasn't actually interested in the farming and cultivation of the land. What he's actually talking about is the reaching of people. And so the provocation is this. You say this, it's four months until harvest. In other words, we're just waiting to bring in the crop. 
Jesus says, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Essentially, the time is now. You could say the principle is this. Here's the principle. Don't miss the mission opportunities before you. People are ready now to be born into the kingdom. Amen? In fact, what's interesting about what Jesus says is that, like, historically, you have a sower, and then you have a reaper that comes along later. But in this actual passage, he says, like, time is speeding up almost. He says, we're now in a time where people will sow and instantly reap. And it says, and the sowers and the reapers will be glad together. Because the days are short, the days are evil, and people are hungry for something more than what they're experiencing in life. And I guess I just want to encourage you this morning because I feel the burden of reaching people. And so often my propensity is to dwell and to dream rather than to do. What does it look like for a church to be intent on not just sowing fresh seed, but reaping a harvest that has been cultivated in accordance with God's timing and God's will. So often the reason we don't is because we are petrified of being laughed at. Let me tell you that the early church faced some horrific brutality at the hands of the Romans. Like I was reading an article the other day about how they were made into human torches for like the emperor. So they would coat them in wax and then they would set them on fire while they're still alive. And I know that's a horrible, horrible situation. I'm not trying to give you nightmares. But that's the context of the early church standing up for Jesus. That's the reality. And more horrific things than this. They were entered into gladiatorial stadiums and martyred for the faith. And what we fear is maybe that someone might unfollow us on Instagram. What we fear is, what happens if this makes me unpopular at work? Now, let me tell you that if you truly bring Christ into your workplace, not a religious expression and a judgmental spirit, but rather this embodiment of grace and truth, I think actually more people are open to encounter you than you think. In fact, I've been looking at some of the data. I've been looking at some of the data. It's data that I've looked at before with some fresh kind of metrics to go with it. Um, let's do it. How long have we got? Not long. Okay. Um, uh, shall, we, shall we? Shall we? Shall we? No, let's not do it. No, well, you say yeah, but I'll get in trouble when I get home. That's the problem. Um, I don't want to bite the hand that feeds me literally, okay? Um, okay, here we go. Look. This is Church of England data. Uh, they did this uh, audit in 2022. The Church of England, thankfully, are brilliant at keeping their metrics. In other words, they're good at kind of just auditing their movement, auditing, auditing the denomination. What's interesting, historically, the Anglican Church is the, the most biggest, the, the biggest church in the UK. And this is UK figures, so it's kind of interesting. You see, in 2019... Uh, there was about 700,000 700, or so, or high 600,000s. I know the exact numbers. Um, you can find this on the Church of England website. It's not hard to find. You see, in 2020, I don't know what happened, but for some reason, there's a dip. 
I don't know what that was. Does anyone know? Okay, maybe some of us do. Okay, COVID came, and we see this dip. And 2020 isn't an alarming dip because you'd expect to have in-person attendance down in 2020. Um, but what we see in 2021 is that the bounce and the upturn isn't in keeping with the last decade of trend. So what we see actually in, in, in a space of two years, the Anglican Communion, Church of England attendance, has diminished by a third. Now, now you may go, oh, it's not too bad. They've still got a lot of people. Uh, you know, they've, they've still got like 600,000 or so. But actually, no, that's not quite right. I can't remember the exact numbers. They've got 300 and so thousand now. Um, and... You know, you could say, well, maybe people have just left the Anglican Church, and that may be true. Maybe they've sidestepped into other movements. We know that the Anglican Church is about to face some challenging things, you know, with some of the way they're going, that we could maybe see more fallout from that. But the thing that's alarming most about it is that, really, these metrics aren't unique to the Church of England. Um, America, we've got the Briley Consultancy, and we've got the Barna Trust, who are much better at keeping data in the, UK, uh, in the US than in the UK. But, but we learn a few things, and I, I just want to put up a couple of things, okay? Can you put up the first slide after this, please, Jonathan? Lifeway Research, which is to do with Tom Rayner, he's a church statistician, he's like well-known in church leadership circles. They audited 50,000 people who started attending church in the last 10 years. And let me just put this disclaimer up front. Church attendance doesn't equate to ch salvation. Okay, but salvation is hard to measure when you audit. Church attendance is easier. So we're using it as like a primitive kind of metric to understand the picture of the health of the church. And what he learned, about 50,000 people who started attending church in the last 10 years, they came to church because of an invitation. 2% by advert. Maybe that was like social media adverts. They come to church on Sunday. Phil Coleman's got to be in the house. You're going to want to meet him. He's a silver fox and he's good fun. Okay, 6%. By pastoral invitation, so maybe I'm visiting someone in hospital, I say, I'll oh, come to church on Sunday. 6% by evangelism campaign, so maybe that's an alpha course or something that he's drawing people invita by invitation into the church. And then 86% by friends or relatives. So of the 50,000 people who are now in regular attendance at church over a 10-year period, by and far the best invitation, the most effective invitation came from who? Friends and family. Now, this is important because you've got to think about your world in this. The sphere of influence that you have. Uh, what we also see, can you go to the next slide, please? They now audited 50,000 people who do not go currently to church. Okay, same, same project. 50,000 people, a different 50,000 people who don't go to church. And they asked them, what invitation would get you to church? 67% said a personal invitation from a family member would be somewhat effective. 63% said a personal invitation from a friend or neighbor would be somewhat effective. That actually, this is what I'm saying. The fields are ripe. It may not always feel like it, but actually your friend or your family member is one invitation away from coming into the house of God. Now, let me just say, getting them to sit in a church service is not the goal. But actually, it's a start to a journey, I believe. Now, by contrast, this is the most alarming uh, stat about the whole thing. Is Can you put up the next one, please? 50,000 people who currently go to church were audited, and only 2% of them actively invite unchurched people to church. 
That's kind of sobering, isn't it? Do, do you see those numbers? Well, I, I hope you do, otherwise you need to get spec savers, right? They're right there. And I made them really big, so you can't miss them. But even though invitation is one of the most effective tools for seeing people coming to the house of God, and hopefully that translates to salvation. But it's not just about that, because actually we're called to go, not to bring. But only 2% are proactively understanding the mandate to actually go, because as Jesus says to his disciples, he says, open your eyes. Your spiritual eyes see that the harvest is ripe, and the harvest is ready. There's a, another scripture that I just want to put on the screen, and I'm going to conclude now. Uh, Matthew, do you want to come up on the keys? In fact, all the band can come on up. Um, don't do that jazz bit, though, for me at the end, please, because that's, um, I just want to dance. Um, but yeah, that's great. Thank you, guys. Um, Ecclesiastes 11, verse 4. Look at this. Speaking about harvest. Don't know if you've read this passage before. But it's so interesting. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. Isn't that an interesting soundbite? It's, put up the principle just to help me, Jonathan, please. If you constantly look at the surrounding circumstances, you may never sow or reap at all. If we are constantly... Can you go back to the scripture now, please, Jonathan? I'm a very demanding preacher. If you are constantly watching the wind and constantly assessing the clouds, there's always going to be a reason to delay from stepping into what God wants to do. But yet we read in James 4 that if we know what we ought to do but don't do it, then we are in sin. I don't need to tell you this because you know this, but we are in the end times. <clears throat> Jesus is coming back soon. Amen? This is a good thing. Jesus is returning for his bride, the church. So often we just think, uh, maybe not now because maybe I want to get married or I want to get my children married or, you know, I want to see X, Y, and Z. I want to see Tottenham Hotspur win a Premier League, you know. No, we need Jesus to come back sooner than that. You know, we have all of these dreams that we just think, oh, Jesus coming back would just really poo-poo the parade. But actually our attention and our vision should be fixed on the return of Christ. Understanding that the, the days are short. In fact, Paul says to the church in Ephesus, he says, you've got to wake up. He says, wake up, O sleeper. He says, rise from the dead. And Christ's light will shine on you. And then he says, make the most of every opportunity, for the days are evil. 86,400 seconds ahead of me. How do I spend that? How does that impact my marriage? How does that impact my parenting? How does that impact my relationships? How does that impact the way I work? But more than that, how does it impact the way I serve the cause of Christ? Today's the day of salvation. Today is the day of breakthrough.
Today is the day of healing. His mercies are new today. God's instruction to the Israelites when they would collect the manna, he would say at the end of the day, discard that which you haven't eaten for tomorrow morning there will be fresh supply. And so this morning, I just really want to provoke you. I want you to leave. Yes, feeling good about what God's doing in your life. But understanding that the days are short and God's desire is that no one would perish but that all would come into relationship with him. All would repent. He who watches the wind will not sow. He who watches the clouds will not reap. It's time to put off procrastination. Do not delay. Do not defer. Do not think someone else will do it. Your friends, your family, your colleagues, God wants to use you powerfully to bring them into relationship with him. The time is now. Today is the day of salvation.